Hey everybody, welcome to Tone Talk with Mark Uzanski and Dave Friedman. How are you? Uh, it is Monday evening. I was about to say Friday evening, but it's Monday evening. And uh, we have got an awesome guest, uh, amazing composer, musician, guitar player, uh, an icon, someone I've been a big, huge fan of for a long time, Steve Vai. How you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing, Mark? I'm good. And Dave. Right on. Thank and Dave. you for inviting me on the show. Oh, thanks for coming. It's, uh, my God, a huge pleasure. Pleasure to have you. Dave, how are you? I'm doing fine. Yeah, just uh, getting ready to go to Europe. Yeah, when do you leave? The fifth. Where are you going? Uh, I have some clinic tour obligations that I have to do, and uh, this YouTube event uh, that uh, a YouTube uh, guy Henning Polly is putting on with a bunch of different channels and stuff should be really interesting. Where Where in Europe are you going? So, uh, Germany, Netherlands, Barcelona, uh, Paris. Uh, Leon, France also. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like I'm reading, uh, reading my itinerary for a Europe tour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never I've never been to Barcelona, so I'm I'm, I'm very curious about that. So. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah. But I hear it's yeah, beautiful. Probably one of the more uh, packed cities in Spain. Um, it's it's very cultural though, and the you know the they're just real music lovers there too. Spain in general, yeah. it's market if you're a touring musician. Yeah, that's great. Great. Yeah, yeah I can't wait. Yeah, I, I went to uh, I went to Madrid, but I've never been to Barcelona. But I heard everybody kept saying, "Oh, we need to go to Barcelona while we're here," but it just didn't didn't make it. So a couple of, uh, locations. I, I like Pamplona. Mm. It's uh. a cute it's a cute little city, and San Sebastian. It's more like a beachfront city. Uh, and, uh, there's a couple that are buried that are really nice. Excellent. How often do you make it over there? Well, um, whenever I'm touring, usually if I'm doing a uh, any kind of a comprehensive European tour, mm -hmm. the last the last tour, the Passion and Warfare tour, we booked a bunch of shows. We booked like five or six shows in Spain, and and they sold so well, we added like another six shows in different uh, parts of Spain. So I think I ended up doing like 11 or 12 shows in Spain. Wow. So you were there for yeah. a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's we cool. Kind of, dip in and maybe uh. some other things and come back. But I've been really, you know, when I tour, I, I, I really uh, have been focused on trying to go to as many different territories in a particular country. Mm -hmm. That's something it's always on my wish list. Whenever I would put a tour together, I would uh, call, you know, talk to my agent and say, "Oh, I want to go here, and I want to go there, and I want to go there." And uh, I mean, I started asking him to book me in like Eastern Europe in the early '90s, and he was just, "You can't go there yet. <laughs> you know, you just can't get there." Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as it opened up, I started going. But same thing with uh, Russia and uh, China. Been to some great places through Russia. I did a five and a half week tour of Russia. Wow! Um, right. Yeah, it was fantastic. We went. We started in Vladivostok, where on a clear day you can see Japan. They tell me, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we just made our way all the way across the country. We went through Siberia, and uh, it's interesting because I was told I performed in some places 
in Siberia that they've never had a, an American rock artist, like in Omsk and Tomsk and places like that. But it was just such an interesting cultural diversity to tour through Russia. Mm. Any means necessary. We were on trains, planes, buses, you know. I was going to ask, how did you, you get around? Was it like a tour bus? or So you, you took it all? Tour buses that I know of where we went. And uh, it's it, it just kind of public transportation, which is uh, rustic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've been to Moscow once, and uh, this was quite a few years ago now. And uh, oh, maybe at least 10 or 15 years ago now. And... Uh, yeah, I, I, I understand rustic. <laughs> yeah. First time I went to, to Russia, I played this uh, White Nights Festival because it was at a time when the sun didn't go down. You know, it was the summer. And it was in the mid-90s. And back then, Russia was completely different. Moscow. Yeah. Very, very, and St. Pete was very different than it is now. And, uh, yeah, it was... Um, I mean, they were just coming out of... Um, the whole communist thing, you know, it was relatively the, the, that kind of freedom was relatively new, uh, but it still had all the sort of uh, communi communistic remnants and, and culture, you know, the architecture and just the way that they were set up over there was a real surprise because we, I think we kind of take for granted how free we are here as far as and I'm talking about back then Mm -hmm. uh, you go to a store and you want to buy something, there it is. You've got tons and tons of things you can purchase. And you go into a supermarket and it's gigantic. And um, back then, they didn't have things like that. But then as the years went by and everything started to get imported, now it's like, you know, Moscow is it's like a, a cultural mecca. You know, mm -hmm. they got all the, all the fine uh, fashions and gear you know all the music gear you can get there now oh really Beautiful stores yeah it's 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 just amazing interesting that's cool now you just got back right from uh doing your vi academy mm -hmm. how'd that go oh my goodness it was just so fantastic you know we started them about we started doing it about six years ago and oh seven years ago and this is the we just did the fifth one i believe uh-oh I don't remember these things. I think it was the fifth one. Yeah. Yeah. Fifth, yeah. <clears throat> and it was just great. You know, uh, conventionally, we, we invite some uh, higher profile friends to come and, you know, teach and give seminars. And this year we had Pliny and Devin Townsend and Andy Timmons and uh, Joe Satriani mm -hmm. came and Larry Mitchell. And it was just great. You know, it was just such a, a great atmosphere. And the people there, it, it was uh, it was sold out. We had about 200 and the capacity was like 200, but I think we had like 203 and it was, a, they're always at these fantastic locations where it's just so comfortable and sort of resort living. And, uh, there's all sorts of functions going on in all the rooms and we've got really great clinicians. Like, you know, you, you guys know Dave, Dave Wiener is um, there playing and teaching and, uh, Stig Matson, you know, he's fantastic clinician. And you can just go to all these rooms and there's always something going on. And then each each of the guests would give a class and I would give classes. And 
we were actually focusing the camp on, because I like to kind of keep some kind of a uh, theme, and it was sound sculpting. So we, t we talked about signal path and certain gear parameters and various pieces of gear and how they, uh, you know, how they work, what they do, various orders of gear and effects pedals. And, and you never get to do everything you want. I mean, you know, I, of course, I made lists and lists of things I wanted to talk about. And then the next thing you know, two hours have passed and I've been gabbing. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing I like about my camp is uh, I jam with all the players. It's really, it's really fantastic because we have, we have my band, and it, this takes like four or five hours a night for like four nights. And everybody, they come one at a time, and it doesn't, doesn't matter at all what frequency level you know. Right. Where, wherever you're at, as far as your technique, is just fine because we make music. And then I ask them, okay, start anything, you know. And it's so great because they start playing and you're forced to listen and to communicate. And, you know, I don't sit there and blaze over everything. I, I actually c try to connect with the player. Right, and see what they're doing. And, yeah. And it's really, really great. It's funny, even after four days of five hours a night of it, I was, I was missing it the next day. <laughs> That's cool. My fingers weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so it's... That, right? It was, so it was over like four or five days? Yeah. Four That's, days usually. Yeah, I saw a video you guys just posted of um, uh, it was a kid that came up on stage with you and played. We had, a lot of kids. We had little girls even and, you know, even elderly people sometimes. Not old, old, but, you know, 60s, 70s. Nice. Fantastic. And we do it about, I, I, I think at first we tried like once a year but it felt a little much so we kind of space it out sometimes it's a year sometimes it'll be like 18 months or so but we want to try to get to some different areas too like uh, maybe Europe it's just uh, you know logistics are a little more difficult but uh, yeah it's fantastic that's awesome cool. so is that your studio is that a home studio or studio I think many people have seen it already. I'll turn the light on, take you around a little bit. In the background, I'm all tied up with my computer, but you can see the console. Yeah, yeah. And then that's nice. All day. <laughs> it's kind of like there's my little lounge. I get a little meditation lounge. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's really. Cool. I didn't want it to look like a studio. You know, it looks more like a. I don't know, gentleman's library or something. <laughs> yeah, the wood gives you that, and a little bit of the the books. Yeah, it helps. That's cool. And you got the other room filled with guitars everywhere. Yeah, that's yeah. the guitar room. Yeah. Yeah, there's always got to be a guitar room. You know, I can, I can. You know what? Let me. Uh, I can unplug all this. Nothing. You're not going to go away. I'm just going to lose my drives. Whoops! Hang on one second. Okay. Uh, all right, here we get the tour. Awesome. We're gonna get the tour. I like colored lights. Yes. Got those lights over there I got in uh, Istanbul. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. It's got a little restroom, and then this is the playing room. Oh, beautiful. 
Yeah, oh. few guitars. Guitars. <laughs> nah, I would um, have to send somebody to go get it. But th this is one of my favorite parts. Check this out. This is something I always wanted. Oh baby. Oh yes, all the pedals. All the pedals. This is like my coloring. You know. <laughs> nice. That's like the things that excite me. I don't even I, I don't even own a car. Well, I do, but it's not really. Uh, I've, been, I've had it since 1986, but I don't drive. But things like <laughs> that. I, do drive, I do drive, but I rarely. I don't need to. My favorite car is Uber. <laughs> but uh, that uh, little pedal chest is something I always wanted to have. That's su super cool. Yeah. Yeah, Uber. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Especially in L.A., right? Oh, right. Absolutely. So what's the car you have? You know, if I was ever rich and famous, I would, what would I want? Well, besides my own orchestra, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I'm, I'm working on, um, I thought I'd love to have a driver who can, you know, drive me around wherever I need to go. But that's always kind of, you know, that comes with um, complications. With Uber, I just hit that Uber button and I walk right outside and they're there. It's amazing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, I always wanted a Tesla, you know. I thought, okay, now I'm going to go and I'm going to get a Tesla. And I'm like, why? It's just going to sit in the garage. Nobody's going to drive it. <laughs> but they're cool, right? But they're cool. Yeah. That's... They're cool. They're you, cool. You, prob you probably spend less in Uber fees than the, the cost of the Tesla, you know, in there, or even the lease or, or, or whatever you have would have. You do. You do. It's funny. Um, so I know I want to mention to folks who are watching, I know that we've got a lot of folks who are going to have a lot of questions. We will get to your questions, I promise. Um, and uh, I wanted to mention as well that if uh, you guys want to check out any Steve Vai gear, Ibanez guitars, uh, check out Sweetwater. Go to Sweetwater. Um, go to Sweetwater.com because beginning this Friday, August 30th, they're rolling out a really uh, great exclusive um uh, for a Fender Custom Shop GT11 Strat and Tellys and Walrus Deep Six Voyager Combo Pedal and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, and then also 48-month interest and in financing uh, on a lot of brands. So check that out, all right? Um, so moving on to other you things. You can buy a gem. You can buy a gem, exactly. And a bad horse you walk. <laughs> all that bike gear. And straps. <laughs> So how did how did the uh, Vi Academy come into development? Danny Heaps, uh, this uh, he was a manager and he still manages, but uh, he had this idea, and uh, he approached us. And I've been approached with things like that before, but um, I just never had the stomach to kind of pull it all together. And he he said, "Nope, you don't have to do anything. I will do it all." You know, and uh, so well, it's something I always wanted to do. Because he started a company, um, and he started doing these these camps, and he does a, a lot of them. He does Joe's camps, he, he does uh, uh, Tommy Emanuel's, and he does different kinds of camps. You know, I, I think he's he's starting to merge into other things besides guitar. But yeah, he laid it out, and we talked about it, and I thought, he's got this completely covered, you know? I don't have to worry about 
finding the venue, worrying, the, the expenses of things, balancing all that. And he just uh, presented it to me and I thought, okay, this is good, let's go. And it just turned out much better than I could have expected. And every year it, it, it just gets more and more um, engaging and fun. And I, and, and I see a lot of people coming back, you know, the, the repeat campers, so to speak. And uh, so it's a nice place to go and meet new old friends, you know. Yeah, it's great. Right. We actually have um, someone in the super chat, Jasco Plumbing Supply wrote, Hey guys, I was a camper at 5.0. Please let Mr. Vi know how grateful myself and all the campers are. It was a life-changing experience and jamming with him is something I will never forget. Thank you very much. That's great. Thanks. Thanks. I, I only, uh, I was talking to somebody and I was thinking, uh, we were mentioning how cool would it have been when, uh, in the seventies, when I was young guitar player, mm -hmm. if they had like this, you know, but they, they didn't have anything like this that I knew of. No, no. Or even like the rock and roll fantasy camp that, you know, yeah. stuff like that. They, there was nothing like that. I guarantee it. Um, we also wanted to mention, uh, Robert Bogdan. Thanks for, uh, uh, contribution. You didn't have a question though, so um, yeah, it, it seems that seems cool. Now, how did you get involved with uh, the Generation X? Ah, oh, that's um, well. It was sort of another one of those fantasy ideas. See, I love composing and I love arranging, and uh, and I love Brian May. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, he was such a master at his unique craft of building these beautiful guitar orchestras that resonate in ways that I've just, you know, you never hear. I've tried. I've tried many times to try to get that orchestra guitar sound that, that he mm. kind of has. There's just no way. It's just unique to him. But the idea of having a bunch of guitar players on the stage, aggressive rock guitar players with, you know, the rock tone, so to speak, playing these intricate melodies and harmonies that I, I had never seen and in my mind's eye I was picturing how it would look and I thought this I have to do this this is just fantastic you know so <clears throat> the idea so I put it on the back burner for years with many other kind of ideas mm. and I just for the uh, for the right moment for the universe to say okay it's time and that time came when I received a call from Miles Copeland, mm. uh, who's a, a, a manager, pretty heavyweight manager, very creative guy. And he invited me on a guitar tour of sorts. And, you know, I've done many, many of them, many kinds of guitar tours. And some of them, like G3, are just fantastic. You yeah. Know, that, that, uh, that was always a, a treasured experience. Um, but I kind of, you know, like, and I did the experience Hendrix tour. I like that. But I said to him, well, I'll tell you what, I have an idea. And I explained it's one backing band <clears throat> with all these different players coming on and off the stage, uh, to c combine performing in, di in different ways in different songs. And, uh, so I wrote this list of various genres like metal, rock, blues, fusion, um, acoustic, uh, etc. And I wrote all my favorite guitar players in each column. And because I thought that this concept could be sort of uh, 
move to different genres as opposed to just being one genre. Mm -hmm. And I started with the one that I would probably be most comfortable in, which was the rock, the metal, you know, because I, I was just hearing that, you know, hearing these screaming, beautiful, flowing electric guitars in harmony. And, uh, you know, a lot of, if I was to do that with a, a jazz combo or something like that, uh, it would be different. You know, and I probably wouldn't fit in. <laughs> but the metal one, the rock one, I knew I'd fit in. So the top of my list, I had, um, you know, the, the guys that decided to do it. Mm -hmm. I had Zach, Ingve, Nuno, and Tosin. And I just thought there was, I mean, I, I've known them professionally through the years, but they each have such a unique voice on the instrument. They've made great contributions, and, and they have a uniqueness. You see, with the Generation X, I... I really needed to get guys that were very comfortable in their skin, that were confident in what they do, and have um, some cachet, obviously. But also, uh, I guess, first and foremost, they needed to have a good sense of humor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And I had to feel like it was going to work uh, with the personalities. And you put on paper... Zach Wilding, Bay Malmstein, Nuno Betancourt, Steve, and and people were telling me I'm out of my mind. You know, you're never gonna get those guys to get along and get on a bus and, you know, work together. But boy, oh boy, uh, it, and it was it was everybody was like, how how are you gonna do this? How are you how are you gonna get these guys to live together and work together? And I I just felt that the concept, if they get the concept. The concept is bigger than any of the individual parts, you right. know. And Plus, all, everybody's matured a lot over the years. Completely settled. They've been through it. They've been through right. the, you know, the, the the ego trips and all that stuff. Right. And there's respect, you know. And there was, and it's a it's a cake tour, you know, because you, you go up there. I mean, the idea uh, visually was to start the show with all five players coming out and playing a song that was everybody kind of knew, but doing it differently and in the first tour we started out with uh, foreplay and I heard that I was in the bath I was in uh, my shower and the radio was on this years ago and I heard that song and I said that's the that's the show opener because it's got that melody da 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 and when mm -hmm. you hear that with all the harmonies and all, all the guitars it's just fantastic mm -hmm. but originally one of the songs that came into my mind that really uh really got me excited was bohemian raps but that's a that's a, a beast man you know to try to get uh, that performed on five guitars and in the first tour we just didn't have the time in rehearsal to do it so the show was was really nice because it started out with all of us coming out and did a few songs and then nuno joined him for a song and then nuno did his set and zach joined him and then, you know, we kind of did that. And there was a part where Ingve and I played together. We do Black Star, and it's, it's, it's just great. And then the four, four people are out there, and we did Frankenstein, which was uh, really nice to, you know, get all those horn lines. It's a really cool kind of a song with all those melodic harmonies. Mm. Have them shifting back and forth between the guitar players. Uh, it's just, it was great. And I heard that in my head. And... I, I thought if everybody, you know, can kind of like play the part in those sections, it's just going to be great. And, and it just turned out so great. Everybody got the picture. They saw the big picture. 
And uh, then we did Highway Star. And I wanted to create like an ensemble piece and feature one of the guys in each of them to have, you know, have a little more of a presence. And like, you know, you can see Frankenstein, Tosin has a little more of a presence. And uh, Highway, Highway Star was Ingbe's track. And um, Bohemian Rhapsody was Nuno, you know, because he plays the main melody. So uh, it was working out really well. And I think that the tour itself, something interesting happened. Sure, at first there was, you know, we had to get through feeling everything out and feeling everybody out and recognizing the spaces, so to speak. But there was a camaraderie that evolved that was even a surprise to me. We all just really came together and enjoyed it because these guys, you know, they've been touring. Mm. It's in decades and you've done it all, you know, and this was an opportunity where, you, you know, you're not you don't have to even do a whole show. You know, you're just doing a couple of songs and then the ensemble pieces. And then you've got uh, uh, you don't have to do the business because it's all handled. It's not your band, mm -hmm. you know. It's, it's uh, so as the, the the relief of that kind of stress it was it felt more like a vacation you know what i mean like the kind of thing you worked your whole life for and it was just such a nice uh, tour the first one we did that we decided to do another one we went to asia and uh that was uh fantastic that's where i recorded everything mm. and that's where i uh, edited the uh, took everything to make the record and uh, then we did another North American tour last year and changed the setup. And that's where we worked on Bohemian Rhapsody. And I got to tell you, performing that song was a real, um, a real lesson in discipline because I got every one of Freddie's vocals and dished it out for five guitars. And when you're, when you're playing something like that and you've got five people with guitars, electric, hot electric guitars, you know, in order for it to speak together, you have to connect with each person. You, you have to be like, like your radar has to be completely tuned in to what the other guy is doing. You got to kind of almost like have a, a ESP experience, you know, because you, you got to be so connected. And we focused on things that were so subtle, but important, like no vibrato you know and, and if you're used to playing and with vibrato i mean you got guys like zach who's got one of the widest craziest vibrato vibratos in the world or ingbe and you say no vibrato this note has to just sing just like that and let's use this pickup and turn the volume down to here and the note has to you know the, the way we were starting notes and ending notes they have to start and end exactly together hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, if, you're yeah. Freddie, if you're Freddie Mercury and, and you're in the studio overdubbing your vocals and you're as brilliant as him, it it comes natural. It's got to blend. Stack, stack, you can stack vocals, but when you, you know, stack things. But when you've got five individuals, uh, you, you have to almost breathe together. <laughs> that they would all watch me and I would just kind of very subtly move and that would be the cues for the beginning. And... It, it was just such a, it sounded so great. Um, I heard the recordings, it did sound great. Yeah, it's not on the last record. No, it, it doesn't sound great online when you go and you watch these little YouTube. I've got it, yeah. you know, all the and everything. 
but uh uh yeah it, it it just turned out so well unfortunately it's not on this last record we released because that was called from the asia tour mm. but we uh, have it on the shelf and pretty soon i'll be breaking it out and tweaking it for months and months and months that's cool <laughs> <laughs> you'll belabor over it for you <laughs> that's awesome how did you uh and dave get to to meet dave dave wiener or no friedman dave friedman well i had known dave from when his amp uh you know came out i mean you know the guitar players hold a special reverence for these brilliant amp designers because for someone like me that's like so so out of my ballpark you know when i was designing the legacy with parvin i started i figured i better know something about how you know i mean of course i know the basics but i when it comes to electronics i'm as dumb as a stump man i just don't retain it I, it's completely uninteresting to me um, and I started reading these books and I'm like, nope, I'm not going there. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't interest you. <laughs> yeah. So people who have a, a natural organic kind of understanding and inclination for electronics, it's kind of like when you're, if you, if you always wanted to compose music and you're talking to a composer who understands all the little black dots, you know, you're just fascinated, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm always fascinated. And when, when Dave started to hit the scene, um, I was always interested in hearing, uh, you know, custom amps that were so precision built by guys that make it their passion, because that's the only way it ever really works well, and that's the only way they ever survive. You know, they got to have not only the academic understanding of the infrastructure of the electronics of an amplifier, but they got to hear, hear a tone in their head chasing and know how to get it. See, I, I wouldn't, if I had to build an amp and I had to do that, I wouldn't even, I don't even know the vocabulary, you know what I mean? Mm. So um, I had been with um, Carvin, so I was pretty satisfied, you know. I, I wasn't really listening to many different amps. Uh, but Dave Wiener, my, the guitar player in my band, mm. got the uh, Friedman amp, and I started listening to it, and his, his tone always sounded great. You know, and sometimes I'd be like, why does his, his tone sound so good? You know, what is <laughs> you know, I'd go over and plug in, I'd fool around with the amp, and it was a cool amp. Which amp was it? And, Just curious. The uh, B100. Sorry? BE100 amp, yeah, that we have, the BE100. Uh, it's an old, a little older one at this point. Yeah, but that was... Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so the, you know, the name was always kind of met with reverence. In, in, in my mind, you know, and um, I had I had gotten some of the amps, and I started playing with them, and I think uh, because I was in the deal with Carvin, I wasn't ready to kind of switch. And the, the the legacy is just such a. I mean, we did work hard on it to get it to work for for my ear, and for what I I was searching for. So once I kind of took that path, I just stayed on it until that amp sounded like what I wanted. And once I got it, and I, you know, I, that that was what I used. Uh, but I have a plethora of amplifiers in the studio, as you can see. I mean, I, I probably got one of everything or most of it. Hmm. And uh, 
you know, I pull that amp out occasionally on, on some of the tracks and, and use it because it does ha it does fit a certain frequency range that uh, sits well in the track. Well, that's cool. So I've known Dave, but I never really got to meet him until relatively recently. When, well, uh, actually, I did a rack system for you a million years ago. Oh, really? Tell me and about you, it. You were using a Bogner head. Oh my God! HT power amp and an Eggnator head. Eggnator, yeah. Yeah, the Eggnator in the center, and then the that's the right. Bog, was it the power amp left and right kind of thing? Yeah, I think that was a Fire Garden tour. Yeah. Yeah. A small rack, like twelve yeah, space or something. First Bogner's made, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I used it for a lot of years. Yeah, I still got it it's in mm -hmm. the rack. Mm -hmm. It's got a it's got a very kind of open, compressed, friendly bottom end mm -hmm. you know low notes kind of soak up the room but then i was kind of here i wanted more definition yeah, yeah. You know, to move around with some different amps that was a it was a long time ago it was uh, i remember it was, it was, uh, i remember being at your studio light without heat uh, oh you were at the, uh, the mothership up in yeah, uh, mothership, yeah. uh yeah was i was i using the bradshaw switching system at the time yeah, I well, I had changed the switching system, but you're still using the Bradshaw floorboard, yeah. That is, was that before you were making amplifiers? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was uh, sort of a little bit in partners with Bruce Eggnator back in the early '90s, and that's why I think that's where the head came about. Yeah. I like that Eggnator head too. <laughs> All sorts of tones over yeah. the years. Yeah, you got to switch it up though, you know. You, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what we all do, right? Yeah, uh, got to. Well, so speaking of that, oh, go ahead. Recently, I mean, uh, when I discovered the Synergy system, mm -hmm. that that kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. You know, that that was an eye opener, a game changer, really for me. It was a total game changer, and it's almost like a a well kept secret. And I don't know if it's just me or. Um, uh, you know, it, it, or people don't get what it is. Because this system has so much functionality. Um, I'll tell you about it. So, you know, basically when you're a guitar player, you get an amplifier. And if you're feeling randy, you go out and you get a couple of amplifiers and you get a switching system and then you're dragging all these things around and on tour and... Uh, <clears throat> getting the right balance in the PA of all the different microphones on each of the amps and everything. It's just, it's impractical. And I've, I think I've toured with two amplifiers at the most. Mm. Uh, and it was, it, it was just logistically difficult and tone wise, uh, inconsistent. So I just abandoned the idea and I went back to just using one amp, trying to get as many sounds out of two channels as I can get. But then, uh, I think, I don't know, maybe, maybe you know, Dave, when uh, Randall, was it, started making these modular uh, preamps? Well, it originally started with, uh, well, yes, Randall did make some, but originally yeah. started, Bruce himself was making them in a high-end version of it. Then it was licensed to Randall, and then they made them for a while, mm -hmm. and uh, eventually that ended. Mm -hmm. And eventually, Avi owns the rights to Eggnator, so he made the Synergy system. 
Well, it's a brief explanation. <laughs> well, that that's more than I probably knew. Yeah. <laughs> sure glad he did because the functionality of it, just like it's a game changer. So what it is basically is um, you've got these, you know, for those that maybe don't understand and you're listening to somebody with relatively limited knowledge of amplifiers, but an amplifier is basically a guitar amplifier. When you see the heads, they're basically two different sections to that amplifier. One is the preamp section, and the other is the power amp section. The preamp section is uh, is the area of the amp that has uh, where the sound most of the sound comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, the the distortion, the kinds of the quality of the gain, the flavor of flavor of the EQ comes from and uh, this is like the, the secret uh, piece of gear that each amp company works on very diligently to try to craft for their sound because after the sound leaves the the preamp section it just goes to an amplifier and of course amplifiers can color the sound but would you agree with me, Dave, when I say not like a preamp? Yeah, I mean, in, in more modern amplifiers, most of the sound is coming from the preamp section in the amplifier. Yeah. Uh, most all of it, actually. Um, say, but at last time I said that in the press, I got people telling me, <laughs> and I well, know that they're wrong, but, you know. I mean, more, vin more vintage style amps, you know, <laughs> where you have to crank the amp up to get the distortion out of it, you're 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 getting more of the sound from the saturating power section of the engine. Right, right. But uh, in most modern stuff with higher gain sort of capability, it's all it's pretty much all in the preamp. I mean, you're not even in these days you're not even running the power amp that loud to to really do anything. Exactly. These days I don't. I mean, yeah. my, I don't play loud really well. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I heard your stage. Yeah, a little bit. You were playing pretty, pretty good volume. Well, when I'm on stage, I'm pretty loud. But I, <laughs> I can, I can turn it down in back of me, and I've got my wedges in front of me. Yeah, yeah. But the great thing about the synergy is, so, so the the preamp section is really where the color and the tone and you know the majority of the sound comes from. So all of these uh, wonderful uh, boutique amp builders like um, like yourself and Eggnator and Bogner and so many of these. Here's there one. you go. Yeah, there here's, a, here's a Morgan. AC. Yeah, yeah I, that, that's fantastic. That's the AC, kind of AC30, mm -hmm. the AC30 one. Yeah. So what Avi did was he went and he actually licensed the, the technology, the schematics for many of these uh, companies that these boutique companies that make these fabulous amplifiers, he licensed the uh, schematics for the preamp section, where all the sound is. Now this is not modeling, you know. This uh, this uh, modeling is something completely different mm -hmm. than what we're talking about. Yeah, this is tubes. What, yeah, this is real tubes. The the preamp sections actually have tubes in them, and they're modular. You just saw one of the modules, and this was like um, uh, an epiphany for me, because now I've got my system. I should have taken. Maybe I want to go back in the studio. Sure. See my sure. Energy system. <laughs> uh, let's see it. 
You have your uh, your module there, your green one. My module. <laughs> See if you can. Is he still there? Uh, we'll see. Steve? Well, guys. <laughs> we might have lost him. We may have a tech, uh, may have a technical difficulty. Let's see what happens. Uh-oh. I wonder what happened. And that's it for the show. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get Steve back. He'll come back. Well, basically what he was going to show you is he has a rack that has two, I think just two SIN 2s, which hold two modules each. And he has two of them, so he has four modules. He might have three of them, I forgot. And uh, so essentially with the four modules, he can switch between you know various amplifier sounds and kinds and between his amplifier and all. Yeah, you get... Oh, we lost them. Get it good. Can't see that. Oh, can see it sorta. And you see it. He is a green module. <laughs> That's the green module. Let me get Steve back on. Give me one second. Yeah. Take one second. While we're waiting. Rick. Hi, Rick. Whoops. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. We lost you. <laughs> okay, so I'll continue. So this, uh, can you see it okay? Is it working? Yeah, we yeah. see it. I know I got more lights in here, but... Uh, so, so three SIN 2s, I briefly explained. SIN 2. I have six amplifiers, and each one has two channels. And uh, it, they go through my fractal up here, hmm. and any kind of other gear. You know, I've got racks and racks of stuff, and all sorts of different amps. That DV Mark's a nice one. This Victory's fantastic. Amp. Yeah, those are They're great amps. So different in color. I'm trying to get those guys to make modules for, uh, you know, allow Avi to make modules because I'd love to have those in my rig. Mm. But, you know, um, so then there's the, you know, the floor. You see that okay? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, this is the different uh, channels. And I have the legacy that actually has a loop in it so you can put uh, any amp of your choice in. And uh, this is a new switching system I'm fooling around with. And so I've just got uh, all of these tones instantly changing. So imagine coming from two channels to 12. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, 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 nice. it's, it's amazing. It really is. And they all, they all have their own uh, individual sounds. You know. Different sounds. And then they all flow through the effects, the same effects, and then they flow into a power amp. Mm -hmm. And then so we've got just a stereo setup with all of these different amps. It's really nice. Are you using the fractal for uh, just basically effects? Yeah. So that's running through the loop, I imagine. Yeah, that's running through the loop. It's the most transparent uh, digital gear piece of gear that I've, I've ever uh, tried. It's very powerful. It's like a space station, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can get lost in the abyss in that thing. And uh, if you really want to get forensic with it, you can build all sorts of sounds that... Um, it's infinite, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And 
um, it uh, it it's a little it's easy now. Every time they come out with a new one, it's easier and easier to use. The the interface is much easier, so you can use modeling with it. Uh, I don't really do the modeling. The, the problem with me and modeling is there's there's two two things. One is there's latency. Mm. You know, granted the fractal has got the least latency. It's it's less than a millisecond, which is pretty respectable. You know, um, you should check that statistic, though. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. That's what I was told. Uh, and the modeling amps always have, I mean, they're good for certain things. They, there's a body to them that's missing somehow. They, they always sound a little, and sometimes they sound great. But then you get them with a band, mm -hmm. and you've got bass sucking up frequencies and the cymbals and all this, and the, the, the sound doesn't cut. And cutting doesn't necessarily mean it's got to be louder and brighter. You know, it, 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 this needs to be an integrity in the tone, in the, the roundness of the tone, that's going to be able to compete with all these bombarding frequencies on a stage and cut. And I just haven't found a digital amp that does that yet. And even, it doesn't quite sit right. It doesn't it sit right. Yeah. Even bands that I know of and friends of mine in bands that people know um, that use the modeling and they go directly into the console, basically. You get a clean, great sound, so to speak. But still, it's a little too evolved for my ear. Meaning, sound is evolving. And the way that we're playing music and the way that we're uh, building gear, uh, it's sort of like, you know, you go from tapes to digital and there's just kind of a difference, but you you can't you can't go back. You know what I mean? It's hard to go back to uh, buying CDs. For, well, CDs are digital too, but you know, well, like a lot of people are going back to vinyl. Yeah. But a lot of a lot of musicians are maybe using the um, modeling stuff, and then you start getting used to the way it sounds, and it sounds like a contemporary sound. I, I just, I, you know, I, I just don't want to evolve that way. <laughs> yeah, you're a purist. Analog amp. Yeah, and they sound great. Yeah. We're sitting there, you know, in, in, in 30 years with my Synergy system. No, I'm not changing. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm psyched about when, when it comes out. I, I gather it'll be a while. Um I don't. I, I, do you guys have a release date on when that's coming out? What's that? Your module. Oh. Um. Oh, you know what? <laughs> I guess the announcement was today. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. I have a ten. Well, it's only because I'm announcing it now. I probably shouldn't have, but uh, uh, you know, I don't care about that stuff. Yes, I made a module. We, we worked really hard on it, and Dave could probably tell you about it because he worked hard on it he gave it the final tweaks and uh i'm not sure when it's actually going to be released but i got you know, they're working on getting it into production i know that much so um when it actually hits the streets is a good question i don't have i don't have the answer yeah um, we got to get avi on I, think the it's gonna be, I don't think it's going to be very that i mean crazy long time or anything i think i think it's 
going to be relatively soon or yeah well we just pretty much honed in on it so yeah awesome oh. yeah sorry if i let the cat cat out of the bag there i i saw it at sweetwater gear fest and everything i thought we were cool to mention it so yeah who can't it's fine. I mean, the way that even things are presented to the public these days is different than it used to be. You know, in the in the past, you had to be very secretive. Yeah. I think there's some of that, but I don't know. I'm over all that, you know. I, yeah. I, and I think we talked about it at GearFest, too. So I think the cat was out of the bag a few months ago. Yeah. So there you have it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's true. Um, so I wanted to mention... Uh, we have a tie with you with one of our first guests on our show. Actually, our first guest on our show was Grover Jackson. And uh, so we talked about... Oh, sure. Okay. Sorry. Yes, nope. Grover nope. Jackson. Yeah. So uh, Grover was on the show, and we talked about your green meanie guitar. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Um, he told us the story about the guitar. So you love that guitar, right? I mean, you used that for a long time. Well, that was my first. Uh, that was my first favorite guitar. Um, when I was growing up, I really liked uh, Les Pauls. I, d I didn't own a Les Paul. I had a fake Les Paul. It's called a Univox. Mm. <laughs> was, yeah. My first guitar was a Tesco Del Rey. Mm -hmm. You know, with the three. And then um, the. Uh, I was a big Led Zeppelin fan, and I had to have a Les Paul. But I didn't like the way they sat, you know, the, the shape of the body. And they didn't have a whammy bar. And I remember when I first discovered what a whammy bar was, it was like, okay, there, there's my arm. <laughs> <laughs> I just knew the potential of it. And I said, any guitar I have has to have a whammy bar, you know. And um, so I, I struggled with the fake Les Paul for a while. And then my mom got me a Strat. 1976 or it's a 77 and uh i was 16 and that was like the holy grail but i didn't like the way it sounded because strats new strats and all you know they were kind of thin they didn't they didn't represent rock and roll to me for some reason i mean i didn't know how to appreciate the tone of a strat back then you know um i just wanted big i was trying to find big and but I used this guitar, and that was the main guitar. I mean, I probably put more notes on that guitar than any others. And I used it all through my um, teenage years, and then at Berkeley, and then when I joined Frank, that was my main guitar. But then when I um, joined Alcatraz, that, that Strat was just, that particular Strat was not going to cut it. And I really wanted a guitar that had that big sound with not single coil, but double coil pickups, but had a whammy. And Grover was doing it you know mm -hmm. Grover was making guitars his um, he was making guitars the first was the Charvel and Edward was from what I know and you know this this is just from my recollection of things he was the first one to have like a what they what we call now a super strat mm -hmm. where it's a strat shaped body with the the humbucker and I thought that okay there you have it you know so but I wanted more pickups and there was other things I wanted to do that that, you know were different so the guys in Alcatraz knew Grover Grover was a friend of uh, Jimmy Waldo's and Jimmy knew I needed a guitar so I went down there and uh, Grover was great you know he was very supportive and 
he loaned me. I needed this guitar because when I joined Alcatraz, I uh, got the call and I actually auditioned. And I had one full day to learn the entire set. And then a gig. Wow. Yeah, because Ingve was in the band and he had just left. And they still had three gigs left on the tour. And, and I was the crazy one who thought, yeah, why not? This is an experience. <laughs> I don't play anything like him, and everybody's going to be expecting him. But hey, heck, <laughs> uh, we went down to Grover, and he gave me that guitar to. He, I, I, he loaned it to me, but he never got it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's his story as well. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that guitar wasn't originally green. Right? No, it wasn't green. I'm telling that story because that's the story I hear he tells, so I believe it. Because I can't remember any of that stuff from back then. <laughs> I, once I got that guitar, it didn't matter if I had to pay for it or whatever. Uh, that I wanted that guitar. It was, it was just fantastic. It was a Sunburst Charvel that had a whammy bar and a humbucker. And I right. took that. Just we, my, my tech at the time, uh, Elwood, uh, Patrick Francis, um, real, real uh, interested in guitars and doing things to them and he uh he stripped it and he painted it green mm. you know, there's so many people that you can talk to that have a better kind of understanding of what happened than i do <laughs> <laughs> so i was just okay give me that yeah Gro grover essentially asked i think he said uh you know uh one day he asked you it's like hey am i ever gonna get my guitar back and 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 you told him it was green. I'm like, he was like, wait, you painted my guitar? All right, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It was it, he, he was fine with it. Look <laughs> the bright side. It's in a museum now. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, it's been in a, the uh, Hall of Fame museum for years now. Oh wow. Uh, yeah. So I took the guitar, and that was the first guitar. I, I believe I chopped out the back to make a floating trim, mm -hmm. and I shaved away the the cutout so that I could reach up high, and you know did, did things like that. Just made a mess out of it. I remember, and that was my main guitar, and that was the one that I was really comfortable with for many years. And I recorded a lot of, um, what did I record with that? That was Alcatraz and Roth. I recorded a lot of Roth and a lot of my stuff with it. Mm -hmm. And I took it on tour, but it, I think because the wood was very soft wood, it really started to fall apart. Hmm. Like, I beat on it, you know? Like, I'll never forget, I was standing back off the stage at Madison Square Garden with Dave Roth, and we're waiting to go on to start the show, and the lights are on. And this was the first time, I mean, I had been to Madison Square Garden many times as a kid to go see concerts and stuff. Never did I expect, maybe maybe in my fantasies, I thought I'd play there one day, but this was it. Right. I mean, I, and it was sold out. And um, I'm standing there backstage, so I'm kind of nervous, you know, and I'm kind of warming up and all excited, and I'm whammying the bar, and I'm getting the strings stretched out, and I'm whammying the bar, whammying the bar. And I ripped the bar. I guess I was more nervous than I thought. I ripped the bar and the posts that hold the tremolos, that hold the bridge in, ripped them right out of the guitar. <laughs> and oh, and there I was pulling a, I mean, not entirely out, but, you know, they, they came out. And 
And there I was holding the guitar. I look at it and I'm like, what happened? And I look and the whole tailpiece was lifted out of the guitar and there was like splinters and shit. And I look up at Dave and the lights went down. <laughs> so what'd you do? I panicked. <laughs> Actually, I grabbed. Uh, I grabbed. A, I had some other ones made. Now, by this time, I had three gems, but they weren't the real gems. They were the ones that I had uh, built, that were sort of before the gem, but they were exactly like the gem. The performance ones. The performance ones. Yeah. yeah. Those were made right before the tour, and in, in a hurry. And uh, that was another another one where I went down to performance guitar, and I picked out a body and shaped it a bit, and then gave it to. Patrick Francis Elwood um, and him and uh, uh, I can't remember his name right now well they worked to get the guitars put into shape the, the four, there was four of them uh, prototype gems and they were built exactly around my specs you know they had all of the little idiosyncrasies that I was always hoping for because I thought if I'm going to build a guitar for me why not make it really for me? You know, so I always wanted 24 frets, and there was no guitars that had whammy bars and 24 frets back then, until until um, Grover started doing it, mm -hmm. I believe. You know, with, yeah, Jackson guitars, I think the Jackson yeah. line. Yeah. Not with the sharp bells, though. Right. Uh, right. So then um, there was uh, the floating tremolo system that I really wanted. That I, I can never understand why. When you have the potential for a whammy bar to pull way up high on the strings, they, they're only go like a half step, you know? Because back then, that's all you can get. I had never played a guitar where you could whammy more than like a half step, or if you futzed with it, maybe you can get a whole step, you know? But uh, I just looked at the guitar, and this was the green meanie, and I noticed that the only thing holding the tremolo system, which was a Floyd Rose at the time, uh, from really going sharp, it was just the wood in the body. So I, I actually hammered it out, and then then the bar was, you know, able to pull really, really sharp. Right. Yeah. And that's uh, that's the story well, of the, the green. You were the first guy that did that, right? So I'm told. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a couple of other really cool features on that guitar. Um, the, the pickup configuration, because I really like the Strat sound when you use the two single coils, mm -hmm. but there was no pickup configurations at that time that could give me that single coil sound, that in-between sound that I love so much. You know, it's, it's kind of like tubey in the in-between neck and middle position and middle and treble position. So when I started working with... Um, Hoshino, we devised a five-position switch that would make those pickups humbuckers when they're full on, and then when you're in the in-between position, there's two single coils because it splits the coil. So it's like the perfect um, balance for me to get all the different tones that I usually like. And then there was a couple of other, you know, smart-ass things I did, like a monkey grip <laughs> and uh, a couple other things, but. Uh, so the, the Green Meanie kind of, uh, it had its its beautiful place in the pantheons of my recorded notes. But then I kind of needed to 
expand, and that's when I, I designed the gem. And then once Ibanez started making the gem, I had no need for anything else. It was a perfect guitar. Right. For me. Mm-hmm. Well, you designed it, right? So, yeah, so you know, it, why wouldn't it be perfect for me, you know? Right. <laughs> well, it should be. That's the point, right? <laughs> yeah. For me, it was perfect for a lot of people because I just can't even believe that's one of the greatest, uh, well, one of the greatest economic booms in my life was the, uh, was the gem. Because for 33 years now, it just doesn't let up. It sells, sells, sells. It's incredibly consistent, even when there was recessions and all sorts of things. And then the RG, you know, that came out when the gem came out, basically. Um, and it was just a lower end model of the gem, you know, without the monkey grip and stuff. And then, you know, Ibanez ran with that, started transforming it into all sorts of different things, which you see today. Yeah, they actually, I was, I was looking at a lefty model that they've got. Yeah, the RGs. They've made a lot of RGs. Yeah, they're cool guitars too. Super yeah. cool. So if we can go back to um, the Dave era, if you don't mind, uh, mm-hmm. if we could talk about that for a little while. What amps were you using back then, if mm-hmm. you recall? Yeah. Well, when I joined Dave's band, I was working with Carvin, but I, I didn't have anything custom. You know, there was no signature things. There was their stock amps, which was the X100B amp. Mm-hmm. And it 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 was good for me at the time, but for Dave's band, it just it wasn't the thing that was gonna cut it. Because now you got to remember, I'm not competing with, but being compared to Edward Van Halen's tone. Mm-hmm. He was the you know the guitar behind the voice. Mm-hmm. Everybody everybody knew that combination, so. When Dave Roth started singing with a different guitar, it had to, the tone had to have, you know, some balls, you know, have some real substance. So I didn't know really what to do because I was not very versed with amplifiers at the time. I didn't own a lot of amps. I, I, I remember I, I didn't, I couldn't afford them really, you know, like, and um, so I got, and I wasn't really a big fan of the Marshall sound. Sorry, there, I said it. <laughs> it always sounded kind of brittle and crunchy. And, you know, I, I play solos and melodies all night. And an, an entire night that, I just, you know, I can't, I can't take it. Um, and very inconsistent, too. You buy an old Marshall and you plug it in one night and the next night it's, it sounds different. So uh, Dave introduced me to this guy... Jose Arnando, is that his name? Yeah, Jose Arnando, yep. Arnando, yeah. And this guy was just brilliant. He was this little, little, little Mexican guy that would take amplifiers and tweak them. And he tweaked all of Edward's Marshalls, so I'm told. And uh, so I bought a bunch of uh, cool Marshalls, uh, good-sounding good ones that I, to my ears, and I gave them to Jose. And, and he takes, he can take a year to do an amplifier uh you know he whatever he did because he's passed away now yeah he did i mean those amps are, are still just cranking and uh he modded through the years four amps for me one of them got stolen and i, I actually still have the other three. 
Oh, I was going to ask you that. I do. I'm parting with those. Mm, I wouldn't. You know, Dave, I should have you take a look at them because I haven't really even fired them up in a, quite a I while. I would love to. I've been through 10 million of those amps. I know them backwards and forwards, so I would, I would love to. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Do you know what he did to them? No, I know exactly. Oh, okay. I, I, I've seen almost every incarnation of what he's done to amps over time. I'd be very interested in actually seeing seeing some of those. Or yeah. I'd be happy to service them for you. Cool. You know what? I'll tell to break them out and send them to you. Yeah, sure. I think they're in a they're in one rack case. They don't have the body. Mm -hmm. You know, the face it's just the face of the amp in a rack. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but they were they were great and they worked really well during the raw years. But back then, gear was just very different. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was much more visceral. Like <clears throat> effects came one at a time in a rack. So if you wanted a chorus, you get one rack mount for a chorus. You want a phaser, usually two racks. Flanger. So when I was with Dave, I had three what looked like giant refrigerators filled with gear and power amps, tons and tons of power amps. And I can tell you the loudest guitar in the world. It was my guitar on the David Lee Roth tour. because yeah. I, I saw you on that tour, the first one. Yeah, I mean on the stage. Yeah, I bet. Audience. Because Dave, for Dave Roth, my guitar just could not be loud enough. It was, the stage was built, so there was a row of like six of my cabinets on one level, another six on another, and another like six or eight on another. And then on the other side of the stage, the same thing. And then all along the whole sides of the stage were cabinets, my cabinets. And on both sides. And then in the grate on the floor was uh, the monitors. You couldn't see the monitors were under the stage, but there was grates so the sound could come through. Mm -hmm. And littered throughout this, festooning the stage was these um, gra grates with my cabinets underneath them. Mm. So you go on that stage, and I remember, I, I just could not believe how loud it was. And I'd, I'd like stuff my ears hmm. with cotton and all sorts of things before I walked out on that stage and I had it all gated so the system at the time would be my guitar and then it went into some effects and then it went into a Bradshaw switching system or then it went into all the, the racks and then the power amps and then the power amps fed it out to all the speakers around the stage we had 11 tractor trailers <laughs> for the yeah. yeah and I, and I'm told that we made it to the Guinness Book of World's record for having the most lighting cans on a stage wow well, silly trivia but there you go so i remember i invited uh, joe satriani to one of the sound checks and <laughs> he came out on stage and i had everything gated so when you're standing on stage, you don't hear any hum, not not a not a note. But if I hit a chord, and you're not prepared, yeah, scare <laughs> <laughs> uh, the crap out of you. You're gonna need a dentist. And <laughs> <laughs> um, poor Joe, I mean, he it, he he like jumped like three feet off the ground because I went, yeah, this is my rig. Check out the sound. <laughs> <laughs> 
And one one night, I made the mistake of forgetting to put my earplugs in when I went out on stage. And I went out there, and I I thought that we were being attacked by, like, you know, (laughs) decibel demons or something. The sound was so piercing and loud that I was trying to stick my elbow in my ear, you know? It was like I just had to stop playing and, and go over and just, you know. Uh, but And Dave didn't wear any ear protection. Wow. I don't understand how he was able to do that, but uh, it's rock and roll, I guess. But that was the rig back then, yeah. That's cool. So um, we actually have a question from Craig Stofko. He wanted to know, um, what was your process for learning uh, the Ed material, you know, like the Van Halen material, be when you were going on tour with them and stuff? Well, um, you can learn it the best you can, but it's never going to sound like Edward, obviously. I've heard some people come relatively close, but, you know, his fire, his tone, just him, you know, he was a game changer, you know. So when I, and I was a fan Mm -hmm. before I had to, before I started playing the stuff with Dave. So... I knew I wanted to play the parts right so that, you know, with maybe a couple of embellishments here and there, like if I'm going to do a solo on Hot for Teacher, I'll, I'll, I would kind of insinuate his solo, but I didn't want to try to do it exact because, you know, I, I didn't feel that that was the appropriate thing. But I knew I needed to get the parts really down. And I learned so much because... When you learn somebody's parts that has such great tone like that, like Edward does, uh, it, it can reshape your playing a bit. So um, the process was just listening to them and then, you know, learning them. That's it. That's it. But when it came, yeah, when it came time to playing, uh, there was no way I could escape putting my own spin on them. Mm-hmm. It just, it's just going to happen. And I just knew there was a fine line where I'm imitating him and or I'm retaining my own musical sensibilities and I chose that because the other one just it it didn't make sense to me to go on a stage with with Alcatraz and play exactly what Ingve was playing or to play exactly what uh, John Sykes played in Whitesnake or exactly what Edward played on those Van Halen songs I did my best to respect but first of all, I can't play like those guys. And second of all, you know, I never thought of it, you know, as far as crossing that line because I just couldn't. Mm-hmm. So I would suggest if you're going to learn those cool songs, then they're great songs to play. I mean, it's so fantastic. You know, we, I did, I played all the great Van Halen songs with Dave. Um, you can choose to try to get them as close to Edward as you like, and that can be helpful. Or, you know, you put your own spin completely on them. I, I landed in the middle someplace. Right. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. Yeah, thanks for the question. Well, you, really, you really sort of went through hell in a lot of respects. So, yeah, first, you, you know, you have all the unbelievable stuff in the Zappa camp when you were really young. Then you had to step into the Alcatraz Ingve role. And then you had to play, you know, Edward Van Halen stuff, and uh, and Sykes, 
and all these great players. It was interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a twisted road that I've traveled. Yeah, <laughs> but somehow in all those things made it made it you. Well, anybody that would have gone through it, if they went through the same things, it would sound like them too. Mm-hmm. You can't escape that. And if you try to sound like somebody else, you're cheating yourself, first of all, yeah. of your own unique potential. And um, I don't know. You know it, 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 like I say, there was just a line. And you're not going to play like Yngwie. You know, right. uh, you'll, you'll, you'll pick up great things. But, you know, and, and they were great gigs, man. You know, I mean, I was so fortunate. They all just fell in my lap beautifully. That's easily. amazing. Just like I was. I didn't even go looking for them. Wow. That's amazing. I, I knew there was only there was a, the Frank gig was kind of like um, when he asked me, I was shocked. I was like, really? Because uh, I never expected that uh, with the with with the. Alcatraz, you know, I auditioned and they asked me in the band and with the Crossroads thing, that was another one where they found me and asked me and with uh, Whitesnake, same thing, I was approached and then, you know, same thing with Roth, I just got a call one day and it was David Lee Roth, you know, <laughs> so all the elements fell together perfectly for me, um, but there was a point and, and they were all like high profile kinds of guitar gigs. Yeah. I'm very fortunate that Whatever it is that I, I ended up laying down that there was an you know the audience was accepting. You know they they were approving so to speak. Well, let's talk about Crossroads for a second, if you don't mind. Um, the guitar that you used in that. Can you talk about that guitar? And... Information from uh, Grover on that because <laughs> he gave it to me. Oh yeah. Yeah. You'd have to ask him because it's another one of those things I don't quite remember. I think what happened was he had he had given me that guitar and I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, maybe he forgot I didn't give it back. <laughs> <laughs> that too is a museum. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, these museums call me and they ask me and I'm not using them anymore. So I figure, sure, why not? Uh that was a sparkly kind of a Jackson that he had uh, either loaned me or given me or I was trying out. And I thought it would be great for the movie because of what I was wearing. And also it was kind of red, which represented, you know, mm, the devil. sparkly, yeah. devilly kind of fire stuff, you know. And there was another one made as a backup because the guitar took a thrashing when I, I would throw it into the ground and stuff. Uh, I don't know if I've ever actually recorded with it. All of that Crossroads stuff was done on the Green Meanie. Uh, I may have I may have recorded with it, but I don't recall. And then after the filming, both of the guitars vanished, and I don't know what happened to them until one of them recently emer- emerged in um, a hard rock cafe or, or a museum. I can't remember, but it's out there. I don't know where the other one is. <laughs> mm. It's funny. I, I, in the early days, I just didn't keep track of my guitars. I mean, I had the 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 first prototype seven string i recorded the entire white snake record on that and i gave it to my engineer and he sold it and i tried finding it and the guy wanted like just so much money for it oh and the, the first gem i gave that away and i i ended up finding it and buying it for exorbitant fee um i gave away so many guitars 
Um, what's some of the other ones? Well, I, it didn't matter at the time. Yeah. Well, but you still. I saw in your room. You still have the uh, the the big. Is that the double neck with the heart? The heart. Well, I had three of those. Two of them were red, and one of them was purple. Uh, one of them is in a museum. <laughs> the hard rock sorry the hard rock has that one uh another one i raffled off for charity hmm. raised a lot of money and some kid in sweden has it hanging in his that was the original one actually has it hanging in his bedroom for one dollar um nice but we raised 20 grand for charity for that one and the other one was just the one that i had as a spare uh, if i was going to use the other ones uh, so that one i kept that's cool. Um, so we got a question from Mully. Uh, he asked, uh, if you could set the record straight um, on who played the various parts in Crossroads. Um, mm -hmm. uh, he, he said, uh, uh, let's see. Um, no, that's it. So if you could just set the record straight on that, that would be great. During, during the duel scene where I'm a part of it, mm -hmm. I've, I've played all of the guitars except for the slide that was done by Ry Cooter. So when you see me dueling Ralph, and, and he's doing that, that's actually me. So, oh, wow. Because Ralph, Ralph doesn't play the guitar. And it's so funny. You know, I have people all through the years coming up to me going, yeah, he really, he's, he's, he beats you. He's, he's, <laughs> he's an actor. <laughs> I taught him how to fake it. <laughs> Actually, Arlen Roth, uh, Arlen and myself worked with Ralph. Arlen worked with Ralph for the whole movie. I just worked with him on that. And and Arlen was a very <clears throat> key figure in a lot of that behind-the-scene guitar stuff in that movie. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's the real story. That's cool. Well, it was pretty convincing uh, with with Ralph on, you know. You know? Yeah, I mean, it, he did a good You're job. Yourself. Yeah. He worked hard. Um, it, I wanted to write something that because I know that people, when they see guitar playing, you know, it has to look like he's beating me. So that's when I, I started doing, you know, the riff that goes all over the neck. Mm -hmm. And when I would go to do it, when Jack Butler went to do it, it would be very obvious when it's screwed up. But it's a funny little bit of trivia about that. When I was filming that, <laughs> now this is, it took 11 it was like 12, 12, 15 hour days, if not longer. And um, it was all shot in Burbank on this uh, on the lot. And they built the Devil's Church. That whole entire scene, they had, they'd spent a fortune building this Devil's Church and getting all the scenes and, and, and filming the entire duel. And that was just for the duel. And uh, at the end, when I had to lose... What I was playing, uh, when they finally finished, when we finally finished, and they took it into the editing room to edit it all together, the director looked at it and it didn't look obvious enough that I had lost. Hmm. So they rebuilt the entire church two months later, and they got all the people back, all the actors, all the same clothes. They they started calling me, "Did you cut your hair? You know, and do you have those clothes? And you know, and." And I had to go back for a day to shoot one scene. And I had to re-record the ending so it was obvious that I lost. Hmm. And that's 
I ended up that last chord. It's like probably 15 guitars, all overdubbed, hitting wrong notes out of tune, and and I fall to my knees. I'm like, okay, is that good enough? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I lose bad enough. You lost. It was phenomenal to me that they went back and recreated that entire scene for like 10 seconds of music. They must have done some research or something with people and said, it doesn't look obvious enough. Probably. That's what they get pretty, they test those movies. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Um, so I, if we can go back a little bit. So I was curious um, and then we can jump into some questions. Actually, before I jump into my question, let me go into the, some of the uh, the super chat questions. Um, so Teddy Teddy Sacalideris, uh, and I, I'm sure I just butchered your last name, Teddy. I'm really sorry about that. Um, he said, "Always wondered why the switch from PAF Pros to Evo. I guess he meant the Evolutions, and if the middle pickup switch uh, changed too." I always love the middle. Love the middle pickup. Is sadly Demarzio doesn't sell them. I'm not sure if you know the answer to that, but well, I like the uh, you know the earlier pickups. But when I started working with Larry Demarzio and had the opportunity to custom make a pickup based on what I was hearing, what I wanted, uh, you know, that's always a, a real coup. You know, uh, it's one of the uh, perks of being. Vi, you know, or anybody in my position is these companies are very interested in what you would like and they'll build things exactly around what you would like if you're actually exploring. So when I started working with Larry with the Evo, you know, we went through a lot of different pickups to get to that pickup. Now the middle pickup, uh, I can't recall what that was. Um, that's a, a Larry... DiMarzio question or a Mike Mesker question or one of those things. I, I Unfortunately, and I do apologize, I have little retention for those kinds of things. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Travis Posey uh, gave a super chat. He said, when I graduated high school, I wrote Steve a letter telling him what an influence he was. He sent back a signed picture with a message. Now I'm 43, played professionally, still have a photo, still a fan. That's pretty yeah, cool. That's pretty cool. Um, I I do get I do get still get fan mail sometimes, um, and I it just stacks up because you know. But every year around Christmas, I, I sit and I I try to answer as many as I can, and it's it, it's funny because some of them are pretty old. There was this one I had found behind the bureau that was like ten years old. <laughs> oh. And some of them are like five, six years old. And I wrote to this guy and I said, you're probably not even living home anymore. You may not get this. And I wrote this kind of nice letter. And then I met somebody about a year after that. And they said, you know, uh, a friend of mine had mentioned to me that his neighbor, his, he has a friend that has a neighbor. And the neighbor knew that my friend knew me and the neighbor said to him, you're not going to believe this, but I got this letter from Steve Vai 10 years after I wrote it. <laughs> and that was the guy that I had written the letter to. I mean, what are the odds, you know? But, uh, yeah, well, I'm glad you got the letter. That's you didn't have to wait 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, 
So I was going to ask uh, and mention to you a funny story, actually. Well, at least it's funny for me, and then I'm circling back in life to uh, have you on, on our show. Um, because you were actually, I believe, you were my first concert that I saw when I was 12. Uh, I went to see Frank Zappa for the um, Shut Up and Play Your Guitar tour. Um, and I believe you were on tour with him with Terry Bozio on drums, I believe. Um, I wasn't in the band with Terry. I joined Frank's band in 80. So it was definitely in 80. So maybe Terry Bozio wasn't playing with you guys, but it was... Yeah, it, did you play on that tour? The Shut Up and Play well, Your Guitar tour? Well, I don't recall a tour called Shut Up and Play Your Guitar. It was hmm. the... Because uh, Frank released so many records. It was um, the You Are What You Is tour was the first one hmm. that I played on. It was 1980. And I played 80, 81, and 82. Gotcha. Yeah, it was, it was 1980. It was in South Florida. It was a place called uh, the Sunrise Musical Theater, I believe. So, yeah, I was there. Okay, yeah. I had to have Vinny on drums. Okay, so it was Vinny on drums. Yeah, I was so young, but I just remember. I had the shirt. Yeah. You are that guy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. <laughs> um so well, some progressive parents taking you to a zappa concert at it was actually yeah. my my uh, aunt and uncle uh they took us uh and the whole time that we were there they were like you, you smell that pot you smell that <laughs> like, we the, those dirty people uh but so i remember I, but I had to go, go to uh madison square garden and see these great rock concerts like led zeppelin Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. The place reeked of dope. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> did you see you them? Know, did you... Did... God, sorry, Dave. Sorry. Uh, it's uh, it's funny. Uh, uh, on this last Black Sabbath tour that was done, um, I they played the sports arena here. And I went to see that show. And when I walked in the sports arena, it reminded me... in entirely when I was a kid going to see shows because it was this dank old arena that you know just smelled of beer and hot dogs and stuff and mold <laughs> and you walk in you walk in and then you smelled the the, the, the pot yeah just like flashback to when I was a child yeah. going to see shows I'm like wow yeah it's a great it's show yeah <laughs> good show contact by I've yeah. done shows where uh, the people in the front were all um, smoking, 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 and it was, you know, after two hours of smelling it, you're high, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want to hear a nice Steve Vai play the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's too funny. Um, so I know we only have a few more minutes with you, and I want to be respectful of your time. So um... you usually go longer than an hour and a half. I'm happy to hang for a while. Sure. If, if you tell me when you're ready to roll, okay? okay. Uh, uh, you know, because we want to, uh, we know you're get busy, some dude. Questions. Yeah, I'll get to, get to some questions here. So there was a question from um, from Caleb from the band Nerd Halen uh, asked, um, "Was the dive bombed tobacco right at the end of Tobacco Road on purpose or by accident?" He said, "If you listen to the song, um, right as Dave says the word tobacco." Uh, you're you do a dive bomb. It sounds like tobacco. Is... Yeah, that's one of those uh, 
phenomenons that happened that I still am, I still marvel at and was pointing it out to my son recently. I don't know how that happened. That was one of those freak freak things, and it, the guitar sounds like it's saying tobacco. Right when he says it, and I've listened to it by itself, and I'm like, that that freaking guitar is saying tobacco. <laughs> and what happened was I was just doing a dive bomb and bomb, and the the strings magnetized to the pickup. Yeah. You know, go and they make a sound that's like, and then when you pull up on them, they go. You know, they make the sound that's like when they pop off of the pickup because they're metal, so the, the yeah. they they get magnetized, and in some weird phenomenon of audio nature that happened so no that it was the dive bomb was on purpose but to get for me to get the guitar to say the word tobacco like that again well actually i've tried it it's not it's there's another way to do it i don't have my amplifier but you can set up right now but if you take the if you take the uh trem bar and you just bring it down a little bit and you see how the, the string is getting Slack. Slack. But uh, if you do this, you just hold it just so it's not not quite slack enough to attach onto the string. And you right. go like, and you push that in the right spot. It goes back, 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 back. <laughs> That's awesome. Too much time on their hands. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I'm trying to get it to say. Marijuana, marijuana, marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> These days. <laughs> oh man, um, we got some other questions from Vincent Moretti. Uh, thanks for the super chat. He says, "Hi, Mark, Dave, Steve. I recently saw recently saw Queen for the first time. Brian May was remarkable. I also just saw him last week, last uh, Saturday." Uh, and he was amazing. He says, you recently wrote a very nice tribute to him. What is it about him as a music musician that makes him so special? He's, uh, he, he has a, a fine sophistication in his arrangements. He has real quality, integrity, rock sensibilities. He has a phenomenal, this is from, you know, to, from my taste, Phenomenal ear for actual music, you know. Um, his inner ear constructed that that amazing tone that he has, and it's always sounded great. And it's always and, and you know just the fact that he was able to build that guitar when he was young, the the Red Special that was hand built by him. So it has a myriad tones to it. Mm. But all these tones and everything in his guitar and his amp are just one dimension. It, it all comes from his fingers and his mind. I've I played with Brian on, on a, a lot of occasions, and he always sounds like Brian. The matter of fact, the first I tell this story, and I think I even told it in one of the posts. When I first moved out to L.A., I didn't I didn't know anybody. Nobody knew me. I was working for Frank. wasn't even in the band yet. And I went to the Rainbow. Now, now I was studied Queen. Queen had a tremendous impact. It was one of the first bands I've seen. And uh, there was something, you know, when you find music that when you're an adolescent, when you're going through those changes, when you're starting to develop your own independence, your own perspective, your, the hormones are kicking in, 
you know, sometimes there's a lot of, um, there's, you start feeling pressure against people who are trying to make you be a certain way and you, you can get pretty intense, you know, and, uh, and I had various things happen to me that were, could be considered somewhat traumatic. And, um, you look for something that gives you an opportunity to escape that feels good, you know? And when I heard Queen and all that great music of the 70s, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin and Queen, really the, the ones, it just was, and Elton John, Marcus Cooper, you know, I was that kind of a uh, teenager. It just, it held a special place that never goes away. And lucky for me, they were all absolutely brilliant musicians. That band, there's nothing like it. You know, there's nothing even remotely like it. It was like a paradigm shift for, for me. Yeah. At least. And what Brian was doing and the way it, the stars came together with, with him and the band and with Freddie and Brian's whole overview of sound and guitar parts, I, it just, just was nothing like it, you know. And uh, I remember when I first moved out to California and I went to the Rainbow, he was standing at the bar. Hmm. I I just could not believe it because a few years earlier I was sitting in my bedroom listening, you know, and I went up to him and I started talking to him and he was so kind. It's just so absolutely kind and nice. I'm like, is this, you know, you're kind of, it's, it's surreal. Mm -hmm. He invited me to a queen rehearsal the next day. Wow. And I went down, you know, Zotrope studios and there was Freddie and there's everybody. And I'm this young, you know, 20 year old kid. Brian's being really nice and he shows me the, the and there was the guitar, you know, and I'm like, is that it? He goes, yeah, it's the only guitar. And uh, you, he says to me, you want to try it? I'm like, oh, I you know, I can't believe it. So, of course, I plugged into his, I played his guitar through his rig and his amplifiers. And to my chagrin, it didn't sound anything like Brian May. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't play the guitar. It was impossible. You know, it's like the neck is like a bat. Hmm. I mean, I couldn't even hands around it and my big fingers you know <clears throat> and the action was low and I just couldn't play it really but uh, it was interesting to see that he got such a heavy thick rich beautiful sound out of it and his vibrato you know his vibrato is a, is a complete class act he vibrate I just did a gig with him recently and I'm watching him and he does his, he grabs whole chords and does the most beautiful, perfect vibrato with them, you know? Mm. And every note sings, you know? And he still has that beautiful tone in his fingers. And I've done gigs with him, you know? And I remember on a G3 tour, um, we invited him out, and Joe and I are playing, and, and Brian comes out, and he just hit a few notes, and we just look at each other and go, oh, my God, it's Brian May, mm. you know? <laughs> most... All of that stuff is fantastic, but if it doesn't come with a musical ear, it's it's almost for naught. Mm -hmm. And Brian has a superior musical ear. Every one of his solos is a melody. It speaks like a melody. And and it. It's a piece. It's, it's a, yeah. It's a piece of music on. I think it's a night at the opera. It's called Good Company, and it's one of these kind of quirky little songs that they they did occasionally but brian overdubbed this guitar orchestra on it that sounds like a ragtime band and to this day 
I, I, I'm the people who hear it and get it see the, the, the absolute brilliance in it, the uniqueness. There's nothing like it. I don't know how he did it. I've asked him, and he just says, "Oh, you know, I went in a little bit before sessions each day when we were making the record, and I fooled him around." I'm like, what the, what the fuck are you talking about, man? <laughs> you know? uh, uh, it's an iconic construction of sounds derived from a guitar in a way that just is unique and unearthly and and quirky so these these things add up yeah he's so unique yeah, yeah especially seeing him live just recently just last week was amazing I, i'm that was my son's my son's first concert yeah he's, he's really good for you yeah good for you it was I did a gig with him just recently, Starmus, which is this uh, amazing five-day science music festival in Europe. It was held in um, Zurich, and it was attended to by some of the greatest scientists in the world. Uh, there was a le- 12 Nobel laureates there, and it was a, a, a celebration of the, I think it was Apollo 11 that went to the moon and landed. Mm. Buzz Aldrin was there, mm. and uh, there was, I think, six or seven astronauts and many people that were on that mission and, and, you know, Elon Musk, you know, and all of these incredible scientists. And there was an orchestra and there was a music component. And this festival was put together by this astrophysicist, Garrick Israelian, and Brian. Because Brian's an astrophysicist. He has his doctor. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also Brian Eno and Peter Gabriel. So they were at the foundation of this uh, fair. And it's extraordinary. I highly recommend. It's like a five-day festival where you go and you listen to these people speak, and, and there's music. So the first, the concert was uh, Rick Wakeman was there this year, and he came out and played with the orchestra. And then I did one of my songs, and then uh, Hans Zimmer came, and he was fantastic. He was just amazing. Uh, we did about an hour of his music hmm. with the orchestra, with these beautiful, you know, graphics in the background and. It was funny because I got handed a stack of Hans Zimmer guitar parts that I had to read. Hmm. Uh, I'm a pretty good reader, so I I, I nailed it, and it was fan- it was just fantastic. Just it, w- it wasn't very difficult. Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but the notes just worked so beautifully with this the score. I mean, it's Hans Zimmer, and then Brian came out and we did three Queen songs, and he gave me the solos. <laughs> You know, <laughs> wow! Forever, and uh, we are the champions in '39, and and it's always a pleasure to play with Brian. Wow, that's amazing! Excellent. Amazing. Um, I've got some other super chat questions. Uh, so from Joseph L. Dean, thanks for the contribution. Uh, he says, "Steve, do you record yourself when you're when you're noodling, and what's your favorite method of trying to remember new riffs or parts of songs when you, when you're just playing around?" Well, I highly recommend documenting your inspirations somehow. And I've always done this <clears throat> ever since I was a kid. I've always, whether it was, whether it was with a cassette player or um, DATS when they came along, but now it's all on my iPhone. And it's, uh, I highly recommend doing this because here's, here's what happens, I believe. Um, everybody... I believe, actually, I think it's a fact. Uh, everybody is uniquely creative. 
they, they, they can be. They have the potential to be completely unique at their creativity. And this is a good thing. This is what makes the world go wrong. You know? But unfortunately, a lot of the messages from the outside world, if, they, if you listen to these messages and you believe them, it can cut at the root of your creativity because they can lead you to believe or to at least create thoughts in your own mind that mm -hmm. uh, this is impossible. How, you know, I, how, how can I do this? How can I achieve this? I'm not good enough or there's fear, you know, there's fear of failing, there's uh, not fitting in, you know. But your unique ear, your unique inner ear um, requires you to be completely transparent. And what happens a lot of times, and the person that asked this question may, if he's, if he's a musician, mm -hmm. uh, may occasionally come across what feels like a really good idea. So if you're playing and you come across something that has an energy in it or it's something that just makes you kind of, hmm, what is that? You know, or there's it, it, something that connects, you know, you know when you're connecting with your unique creativity because it feel, it just feels good, you know. And if you're doing something and it's not right, you, you move to something else, you know, you sift through pros and cons and whatever. But... A lot of times, once you're unique and creative and brilliant, usually, idea arises in you, it gets shut down by yourself, mm -hmm. by your own, which says things. It's not good enough. I mean, you can find all sorts of, if you're able to see, which most people can't, the voice in their head that's constantly talking to them and telling them these things they'd realize that they're cutting themselves short of their own creative potential. So what I've noticed is when I get that little feeling of an idea, it, I, I have to capture it somehow. I have to document it, whether I write it on manuscript paper or I speak it into an iPhone or I play it. Because don't underestimate the power of your inspiration. If you're doing, it doesn't have to be music. It could be anything. If you're doing something and you feel an aha moment, somehow capture the seed of what that is. So, like, what I'll do is, I have thousands and thousands of snippets from the time I was like 13 um, of little ideas, and I'll go back and, and because they'll feel good to me, and I'll go back and listen to them. And when you go back and listen, you can be right back into that place of feeling the inspiration of where that riff or that melody or that idea wanted to go. So I, for instance, have, uh, where is it? Oh, I mean, and every night before I go to bed, I've got a guitar by the bed. I play something and I record it. I think mm. this is one I did last night. And, and here's the thing. You don't have to, it doesn't have to sound good. And, and I'm messing up constantly because I'm listening for it. You know, mm -hmm. and this is how I make my music because then I come back and I've got these ideas that are just begging me. You know, they're, every time I walk past them on the shelf, they're like reaching out and going, "Finish me, finish me." But only one one hundredth of them will ever get finished. Oh, okay, I remember this. Just kind of a simple rock riff. Okay, now that's just the riff. And I captured it. It's, it's a 
for me, that's mediocre at best. That's cool. I mean, that's that's awesome. There's, there's some really cool ones. Uh, I don't want to bore you with going through this stuff, but um, trust me, that's not boring. <laughs> but it's good to know that it doesn't matter. I mean, let me see if I can find something where I'm really struggling to find the melody. Not struggling, just putting the radar out for the for the universe to kind of tell you what the melody should be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me see. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here. That doesn't sound like a song. Maybe I'm tuning. Oh, I'm 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 shitting because I I lost what it was. Okay, so you hear me struggling through it, right? Right. But I can to that right now and I, I can hear that is a full blown orchestra piece don't see the way you know so the inspiration is there and now you just go I'll never do anything with it because there's thousands of them uh, but let me see if there's another one here so maybe I can find one that's probably because I have to dump them off my phone but there may be some pieces on here that uh, I don't have any that actually did turn into songs mm. that I recorded so you can actually hear the the beginning of them right, right. so always try to, always try to capture an idea and and just 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 capture it because if you're anything like me you just you'll forget it it just goes away yeah yeah oh, unless cool. it's compelling that's yeah, great, great advice. Um, so uh, a friend of mine, Jason McNamara, wanted me to mention um, uh, the GoPro video that he shot of you in Tokyo. Yep, good old Jason. Yeah, uh, so Jason's cool. Uh, he said it's got over 600,000 views, so uh, that's a cool. I've seen it. Well, uh, he figured, yeah, he came in, uh, to one of the shows and he, he had this system with the, he would plant these GoPros all around the place mm-hmm. and then re- record the show and he's a great editor. So he, he, he did a bunch of stuff and sent me some things and he did a great job, yeah. That's cool. Very cool. Um, let me go to the questions. Uh, so we had uh, Waterford Giant said, Steve Vai, nothing better. Love your show, Mark and Dave. Just wanted to say thank you. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, so... One other question I wanted to ask you, Steve, because um, I know that you were recently uh, there was a video of you with bees. Are you still you still work with bees and and as a hobby? Is that still something of your hobby of yours? Mm-hmm. That's yep. really that's yep. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I originally started it because uh, we moved into a property that was vacant for ten years. Mm-hmm. So all the gardens were dead, and I just did a little research, and I found out that honeybees are a really great way to pollinate, and uh, and they don't—they're not hard. They're easy to, and they're fascinating, you know. So I started to study a little bit about them, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to get a hive, and I called a, bee, a local bee man, and he brought over a swarm, and I just got into the culture. It—it it was a hobby, but at one point, 
I had like seven colonies and one year we got like a thousand pounds of honey. Wow. And uh, then the, co the colony collapse kicked in and I ended up uh, losing a lot of the hives and, and I kind of didn't have a honey flow for some years. But they're coming back. You know, the bees are starting to come back. They're up 25%. So um, for my birthday, Christmas, my boys bought me one of those flow hives. You know, the, you can see them. They're, they're these new kinds of beehives where anybody can have one. Uh, and you just turn a knob and honey comes out. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? Because it's, yeah, the way it's conventionally done is you have this, the big box and it's got frames, and you take the frame out, and you, right, you, have to you scrape it. Spins, and then the honey drips down, and you strain it, and then you put it in bottles. But these guys, these brilliant uh, designers, came up with this idea to create this hive that, when you turn the handle, this whole mechanism lifts up and separates from the from the uh, from the cells, the cappings, so the honey comes right out. So we got that. We have one of those, and I have a regular hive. And uh, so I still do it, yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's cool. I was just curious because uh, I think that's a good thing for the environment. People thinking about the environment these days. Not only... What's that? It's an easy, fun hobby, and it is really great for the environment. And it's not dangerous. You just you can't be stupid. You know, Honeybees are not as aggressive as people think. I mean, you really got to piss them off. Hmm. But once you piss them off, you, you get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how are you doing on time? You good? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay. Um, I was curious. So a couple things that I saw on your gem recently, and I wanted to see if you could talk about it. So you had a magnetic strip on the back of the, the neck uh, or the headstock where you were holding like your tools, it looked like. Yeah. Um, and then also it had these tuners that look like, um, there you go. Yeah. Yep. That's a Tom Nordig special. Brilliant. Thomas comes up with all these little things that are just so perfect. Like, uh, what it is, is, I don't know if you can see it. It's just a metal thing. Yeah. Right. You know, metal strip and then the, the wrench for tuning and stuff and the, and the, and the bridge just go right there because I always need it. I'm always adjusting. And <clears throat> listen, if there's any really great luthiers out there listening to me right now, mm -hmm. could somebody please invent a guitar that has a whammy bar that doesn't require a tool to do anything? Because this is getting old. <laughs> <laughs> Find a screw to undo the nut, you know, here. Come on, we could do better than that. You guys are geniuses. You figure it out. Come on, Dave. I know you can. <laughs> I've tried. I can't. Uh, but that, that and, and also, oh, well, I'm not going to mention anything. But we have some surprises coming up with Ibanez. Some nice surprises. But having that there is really helpful and useful. And, and Thomas made this, too. He's never marketed it. I, I know I, he should because it's really brilliant. He's like Mr. Velcro. He's like really, it's like a running joke that Thomas is so into Velcro. So he made this thing for me where the, the it's a piece of Velcro, and this is a pick holder. And then he put a piece of Velcro on the back of it, and uh -huh. just there. So all my picks, when I'm playing, they're just right there. 
Nice. Exactly. And then the other thing that I saw was the your tuners on the uh, the guitar. One of them had these knobs that looked like uh, yeah, like a Telecaster knob. Yeah. You want me to go get it? No, you know, I mean, if you if if, if you want to. It was a, uh, it was super cool, Dave. Did you ever see well, what I'm talking about? Yes, I did see it. I held it. I played it. Oh, that was it. Yeah, it was at uh, Sweetwater, right? Yeah. Dave Black, if you're watching, you were interested in this, so here it comes. <laughs> oh, that's right. Dave Dave Black and I were talking about this actually. Yeah. That's why I was this? intrigued. Yes. Yeah. All right. And this is where Steve I falls really short again. And I'm apologizing to whoever made these, makes them, because I can't remember what they are right now. Uh, but I'm going to have Thomas, uh, you know what, I'm going to ask Thomas right now. There's so many companies I work with for little things like this, I just forget. Because they're the, they're the greatest tuning pegs. Yeah, I saw them, I'm like, that is really yeah. interesting looking. It caught my, caught my eye, and then... Um, I was talking like you you mentioned. Yeah, they're um, they're substantial. You know, they have a great grip. You can grab them mm -hmm. just the way they, and and they're you know they have various lockings on them so that once you get in tune, you can lock them down. They just feel good, and and like a lot of times, you know, with tuners, you you, you move it a bit, and it doesn't really do anything. There's like some play. Mm -hmm. there, there's no play. In these things they're just fantastic and yeah. i'm going to find the name of the company that makes them and let, let you know and this is ah graph tech oh graph tech makes them oh it's the ratio tuners isn't it it's the um yeah yeah it's uh the graph tech makes these uh so each string has a different ratio tuning ratio so it's there's no play there's no nothing it's yeah. Really cool, but I, I I hadn't seen them with that that button on the end. So check it out. Yeah, they're that's super unique. Um, so you've been a locking a locking tremolo guy for a long time. Yeah. Um, so have what do you think of uh, these products that are up that upgrade the tremolos like the big like these big blocks. Or you know, using brass in them, or like all these things. Do you use that kind of stuff? Or I'm curious. I haven't really experimented much with them. the The perfect tremolo system hasn't been invented yet. Mm -hmm. Um. And it's it's I I don't know if it. I hope I live to see it. But uh, are you referring to? There's another Thomas special. Or Velcro. Velcro, come on. <laughs> I hell wants to sit there and take out all the screws, right? When you got to change a string. Bad design. Yeah. And then you drop one of those screws, and the carpet eats it just the way it eats picks. <laughs> <laughs> Into the abyss. Into the abyss. So, under the hood mm -hmm. of my car, I use these trem setters, which... Uh, keep the guitar from floating. Uh, it, it still floats, but it's not so impossible to tune. You know, when you have a floating bridge, tuning it is 
you know, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare because the tension changes the uh, the string tension, and you're out of tune once you turn one tuning peg a little bit. So this uh, trem setter really takes about 85% of that away. Hmm. The only drag about it is um, it has to be set up properly. You know, you need to have the right. <clears throat> I, this is why I, I'm always check. You know, I have all my guitars before the show, and I got to check them because this stuff varies. So. That has to be completely even, you know, the way that they, when, when, the, when the block kisses the uh, tip of the uh, thing here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think you're referring to something that people are making these, these blocks out of something different? Yeah, they make or them out of them. Matter. I haven't tried them. I just, I just use this. But uh, what's the purpose of that? I've heard, you know, people have said that they, they use it for more sustain, uh, fatter tone, fatter tone. Yeah. I'm not sure, you know, what we wanted. I was curious what you thought about it. To be perfectly honest, there's a lot of uh, moving parts in what creates the tone. And through the years, as you might have noticed, and the evolution of guitar gear has changed it's becoming really refined. So like the nuts are changed so that it's better tone and longer sustain. The frets are changed. So there's, you know, better tone and longer sustain and pickups, the way the pickups are mounted, uh, you know, the color of the guitar, even, you know, uh, I've heard has some kind of resonant power. Uh, the block, you know, the tailpiece block and all this. Mm-hmm. Many, many of these changes are too minute for me to hear, you know, and I used to feel like I needed to follow along and agree when something came out that supposedly sounded so much bigger and so much better. But I just don't know how you can tell because there's so many variables when you plug your, your guitar in from one day to the next. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just, you know, I, I just... I'll try different things, but I don't fool myself into thinking something sounds better when it's basically a concept that's going to become folklore mm-hmm. and, and is actually just hype. Uh, now, I'm not saying that's the case with all, you know, with everything. Obviously, it may very well be, but frankly, I just don't understand how the different block, and maybe somebody could explain it to me and show me so I could hear it, how changing that block is going to change much of anything because that's not where the string lives <laughs> the string is cut off where it gets clamped down mm-hmm. and there's nothing that's going to be resonating it you know I, I, I don't know you know i've never really heard the difference and i could be completely wrong but i'm being honest no i mean there's whenever i say like this like people write in oh you doesn't know what he's talking about and whatever and yeah i don't that's, know what i'm <laughs> No, you've just only. Listen. Yeah, I mean, everybody has you know their own ear. Just like you said, listen and see if you can tell the difference. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. Um, I was just curious. Um, the other thing I wanted to go back to. What? Sorry, Steve. I, I will have to try what you're what you're talking about. Yeah, give and it a shot. They are, and maybe it'll sound different. I would be shocked, but yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So, no, so I mean. Guitar cable. Guitar 
variables. So, so, yeah. so yeah, I mean, like, every, like there's one. a lot of variables, you know? A lot of variables. Yeah. A lot of variables. So, that, and, you and can the biggest variable is the room you play in, probably. Each each night, the room you're playing in sounds completely different. Completely different. Yeah. The, 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 the material that's used on the floor of the stage changes everything. Everything. Yeah. Stuff like that, you know. I mean, I can walk into a venue and look at the room, and I do it all the time. And I, I could, I, I look at what the walls are made out of, what, what if it's a gloss finish, you know, <laughs> and you know if there's uh, uh, seats or fabric, if it's a wooden floor or a metal floor, kind of like a carpet or all of these things, how far away the back wall is, that that's just the room, and that has a huge, huge impact on the sound and when you're standing on stage and you hit a chord the sound of the floor is much more discernible to me than the block in the guitar do you know what i mean yeah mm -hmm. or, or the or the um the what the nut is made out of you know th this is like an overwhelming obvious sound challenge or whatever and you could be using the same amps, same guitar, same everything, night after night, and it's very, it's very different. It acts different. It speaks different. It absorbs differently. You just have to. Um, uh, through the years, it used to drive me mad, you know, because I'd be like, "Where's my tone? Where's the tone?" And then one night it'd be really great, mm. and then another night it'd be like, you know, and um, I had come to realize that there was many moving parts that determine what that is. Um, now I say totally different, but of course it's not totally different. It's just the, the ambience that carries the tone is very different. So what I do now, and this this is good advice actually for people who are starting to experience these massive uh, sound swings from venue to venue, just make believe it sounds great. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> I just make believe it sounds incredible. And, <laughs> and let it go. And let it go. And yeah. Because that takes away my anxiety for thinking that it could be, it has to be better and it sucks. And then I start liking it. You start playing with what you have, which is all you can ever do anyway. You know, you cannot, you get on a stage, you get, you're, if the amp isn't delivering that night, if the power is different, which happens every venue, mm. every venue. You go to Europe, you've got transformers that changes the power to the amp. Which, it's nuanced differences. And when you're really honed in on, on expecting something particular to come out when you put your fingers on the instrument, you want, you want to at least know that everything you did is solid. You know, that's why I liked working with Carvin. Whatever, for whatever... Those car, those carbon legacy amps, every night they were completely consistent for some reason, hmm. you know. And um, my guitars, I mean, like when I pick up Flow or Evo, I I know what's gonna come out. I know that there's an integrity of sound there. But as far as all the other moving parts, <clears throat> you just got to get used to accepting that they change the sounds drastically, and they can they can change your mood. And that's what you got to be careful of. Because then you're you're compromising your performance and your show and the, the fact that you're playing for people who want to see you at your best 
that's being compromised because you're buying into the fact that <clears throat> the stage just sounds completely different. I mean, I just did a benefit show, and uh, I won't mention where or anything, but um, it was a very difficult stage. You couldn't... It, it, oh, well, even at the camp, when I was doing the camp, mm. little room we were playing in, it was the worst acoustics. You're hearing everything splattering back onto the stage, and you could actually be turned up really loud and not hear what you're playing. That's that's what a room can do. So I used to get very disturbed at this, and it would affect the way I was playing and the way I was communicating. So the reason why I, I said I just make believe it sounds great, because that works. <laughs> <laughs> That 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 takes the it, for me at least it takes the edge off of, you know, worrying and and you're only going to be able to play with what's there anyway. It's like picking up a a, a clean strat when you're used to playing through a, you know a wall of distorted amps. You have to adjust. So. Yeah. Do you do you use a uh, a voltage regulator at all? Like a you know like a a brown box or a variac or anything to keep your voltage steady every night when you're going to different venues or yeah yeah we have those all over um i use them in the studio and uh uh what is well there's different kind but i i use Furman gear it's fantastic because they have um all sorts of brick walls for energy spikes mm. if you're going to go to Europe, you really want to everything has to be in a converter because voltages fluctuate and if you're at 220 you know you're you got to dither it down so we have a whole a whole slew of gear that kind of limits the electric to be exactly what the amp wants gotcha cool yeah. um Furman uh conditioners they're really good gotcha uh, we've got a question from um, uh, the Tone King. He says, uh, can you ask Steve his thoughts on the X100B versus the Carvin Legacy? He used the 100B for many years before the Legacy. Curious, curious to know if he still digs the 100B. I haven't used the 100B since uh, be way before the Legacy. Um, like I said, it was um, it was what I had at the time. I thought it was pretty pretty good. Um, but it's nothing like the legacy. The legacy is a totally different beast. Absolutely. Okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask, um, your blue rake that's coming out. I wanted to get to that as well. Stillness in motion. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I did a pretty robust tour at 20, 12 for the story of light it was like a year and a half or two years and we did 256 appointments so to speak gigs and stuff in 52 countries and i had these various ideas on like flying out a film crew and capturing a day on the road and i never really got around to it because i couldn't make it logistically work but at the end of the tour i decided to collect all of the footage that everybody had kind of put together 
or had taken. And I had some great people. Our drum tech, Chris Huber, is like a, a videologist, you know, and he loves to go around and take videos of stuff and and uh, while on tour and then edit. And, and, uh, he gave me a ton of stuff. I I got all the clips from all the band guys. I had I had a ton of my stuff. Friends and fans sent stuff and whatever. And uh, so I made this DVD, and the, the bulk of it is uh, a live show at the Nokia in Los Angeles while we were on that tour. It was the 49th show of that tour. Uh, so you get the, you, there's, there's the whole show, and then there's three hours and over, I think it's like 3.45, three hours and 45 minutes of all this bonus footage hmm. and all the space between the notes. And I got to say, that's one of my favorite accomplishments because... I edited the whole thing myself, and I love doing it, and I love watching it because it's a real snapshot into touring, you know, and 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 being on tour. And and when I tour with my band, we just have a great time, you know. We're, we really love each other, and we love playing with each other. And you know, my family would come out on tour, and we go out and do things. So I kind of made this for people interested in that kind of thing. But it was released. Um, on DVD back in uh, I think it was 2015 uh, and it it needed to be on loop but at the time I was working with Sony it was just not cost effective to them so the rights reverted back to me and I decided to bite the bullet and make this beautiful package oh nice there it is and it's got two Blu-rays in it and two CDs. And it's got this map that we made of the world and every, every territory that we went to and with a, you know, connecting the dots. So it's got the concert in, in Blu-ray. It's got the space between the notes in Blu-ray. And then it has two CDs of the audio from the concert. And, you know, of course, any label would think I was insane to release a DVD. And I am a label, and I think I'm insane, <laughs> because it's just doesn't, uh, you know, it's just a labor of love, and you lose a lot of money. Um, but I just wanted it out there for the fans that would write and say, I like this, but it's not a Blu-ray, so I'm not watching it. <laughs> <laughs> that and happens. The 13th of this month, and uh, yeah, it's cool. And I'm, I'm doing little Instagram posts of little snippets from the space between the notes. Cool. Yeah. Look forward to getting that. You guys check it All out right. when, when it comes out. What's that? A few more questions? Yeah. Well, I, one question I wanted to ask you, and then I'll jump into some other questions real quickly from other people. Um, I saw you at NAM at the Ultimate Jam Night with the David Lee Roth Band um, and uh, with with Jeff Soto, I think, uh, was singing. Jeff Scott's. Yeah, um, which was fantastic. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, uh, I'd, feel, I'd feel like remiss if I didn't ask you, is there uh, any possibility of you going doing anything further with that? I don't know. <laughs> These days I only, I only move instinctually in the moment. Mm -hmm. you know, like whatever I'm doing at any given time and whatever I feel compelled to do at that moment that's what I'm doing. And uh, so I don't know. The, the, it was a great experience the first time around with Dave and Billy and, and Greg and 
even when Matt was in the band. Uh, I don't know because it doesn't. It, it it's almost it almost feels like the train has left the station in the sense in a sense. Mm. But um, you never can tell. We talk about it. You know, we we kick the idea around occasionally. Dave and I have spoken about it, and uh, it's just logistically it's difficult because everybody's got careers now. You know, I mean Billy is constantly working you know he's like a unbelievable road hog you know yeah he's always on the road Greg Bissonette is out with Ringo all the time and or he's doing studio work and I've got all these things I'm balancing right now the most important thing to me is the music that I that I hear in my head that I want to make and I'm just committed to making as much of it as I can before I die you know and for those who for those who like it and yeah, so I don't know. No, that's great. That's great. It was great seeing you. I was I was front row right there, so it was it was awesome to see that. So, um, he was that guy. I was that guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. They just had the, they had these, they had these girls, the girls dancing in front on the stage. I was like, move the girls. I want to see Steve. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, it's very rarely that I would say that, but well, twelve years old. <laughs> and you know, match. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, no. Back then, it was like eighty percent of the audience was teenage girls in their pajamas, you know, mm-hmm. or it was a very, very rock star period. <laughs> time to be a rock star. Yeah, you picked a good time. You picked yeah, a good time. Yeah, eighty Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. The, the pinnacle. Totally, totally. <clears throat> Times to write a book, but I'll never do it. No, you won't. <laughs> nah, that's not in the cards. Um, we did have one quick one. I don't know. It's all in the moment. So, right. Uh, last question for you. Uh, I'll give it to Soda. He said, "Steve, what trem stopper do you use?" Okay, I know you showed it, but I don't know if you said what what it was. He's not going to have the answer for this. Why <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at doing interviews i'm just like give it to me does it work okay get out of the way <laughs> i don't know i don't know if they're even uh, if you can find them uh, these days but um i can't see the the brand i'm gonna be flayed for this but uh you know what let me let me ask thomas maybe he knows okay <laughs> well, here, sure. here's here's some great here's something cool the tissue in the in the springs yeah, you ever you ever try that? This has I can vert, I can guarantee you that this doing this has much more of an impact on the sound than any kind of iron or metal or gold or silver bridge because when you hit a note, all of the springs are clanking and the pickups pick it up and you hear this huge reverberant sound every time you hit a a chord or a note. So I just stick this in there and uh, uh, Velcro it on and it tightens up your sound tremendously. Hmm. Now, you know, that I can buy, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think they, I've, I've heard they also have noiseless springs, supposedly. It's the cavity that resonates. Oh, it's the cavity. I see. Gotcha. Second. Uh, that's cool. Hey, Thomas, do you know the company that makes the trem setter that I use in my guitars 
cool. Well, wait, that's well, the best thing, guys. All right, well, we'll wait to see if you can get an answer on that. And uh, in the meantime, I think we've gotten a lot of questions uh, already answered from a lot of people. Um, Dave, unless you see any questions that we ha that we've I missed, I see one super chat here that just says, uh, "Steve, can you uh, from WCM fifty one fifty? Steve, can you get Eric Johnson again for the next Vi Academy?" Good idea. You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> I was th I was actually thinking, uh, honest to God, I was thinking about the Vi Academy, the next one, and I thought about asking Eric because mm. he's such a great. He's such a great guy, and he's such a great player, and um, he was really loved last time. What other suggestions for uh, camp uh, clinicians do we have out there? How about Eric Gales? Oh, he's great. My goodness. Yeah. Video of him the other day, and I'm like, whoa. Yeah, you saw that with Joe Bonamassa? Yeah, very connected. Uh, he has a, a certain danger to his playing, too. There's the, that that not afraid to really put this aggression and danger into the yes. notes he's choosing yes and he's very animated and i love that yeah yeah he is animated yeah very animated yeah i'm playing that guitar all backwards <laughs> totally I I believe ibanez i'm not sure if they still make them yeah i think ibanez made those for me <laughs> but i'm but he doesn't thomas doesn't know if he makes them i'm referring to the trem stoppers Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Steve, for coming on. Uh, it was fantastic to have you on. Um, you're so cool. Uh, and um, I also want to mention to uh, everybody, check out Sweetwater. Go to Sweetwater.com. Check out their sales. Uh, you can buy uh, gem guitars, uh, all Steve's gear there as well. They're running some sales. Um, and I would mention if you're a musician and you uh, – and you want to go on a vacation, go to Sweetwater. <laughs> I actually haven't been there. I was stunned when I was there last. How absolutely, it's like acres and acres of the coolest gear. And you got to check it out if you get a chance. It's in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So, get I interrupted. Sorry. No, no, I was just there. Oh, okay. It was great. Yeah, Sweetwater is a really cool place. Uh, one last question for Steve. Uh, there's a guy, he says, uh, John, uh, well, Johnny Bean asks, uh, Jay Hannon says he's friends with Mike Taft and an ex-Ibanez in Dorsey. Are there any plans on putting out a Made in Japan universe again? He has a 1991 and 2000 and loves them. There's no plans right now. You know, a lot of that has to do with... Um, the demands and uh you did he mention a universe did he say yeah the made in ja made in japan universe yeah yeah um there's there's no plans right now but the way that these things get changed a lot of times is when enough people mention something that they would really like you know so uh, if you mentioned ibanez you know they, it's just another kind of tap on the shoulder so maybe yep. maybe we'll do it. Yeah, but right now we don't have any plans. Okay. Uh, one other thing I want to say. Sure. Uh, because this is about tone talk. Yeah. But ultimately, uh, the the tone that you're gonna you're gonna come out that's gonna come out of your 
pans and out of your amplifier, the quality of that tone is based on the way you're hearing it in your head. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is um, you can pick up an instrument and just play with what's what's there and say, okay, this is this is what I have and this this is what it sounds like. And now I'm going to play, and I know these scales, and and I, you know, I'm, uh, my ear, uh, it will basically they're not they're not listening to their ear, they're listening to their mind. And when you do that, you can come up with a lot of intellectual meandering and a lot of intellectual type playing, mm-hmm. and that's fine for some. Uh, for, if it's fine for you, it's fine. But like the quality of a melody, the quality of your tone is based on how you're hearing it in your head. So if you want to improve your tone, you have to you have to hear what you want in your head. Because a lot of times you'll plug in, you'll say, oh, that sounds good, you know, or that doesn't sound good. But if you know more of what you're looking for, the, the cooperative components will start to sort of come on your radar. But the real quality of your tone, the way, regardless of the, whether the amp is clean or what pickups you're using, what, whatever the setup is, the integrity of your tone is in the way that you hit the string. It's in the way that you hear, hear yourself. It's the way that you feel yourself hitting the string, connecting. And this has to do with so many variables like where you're picking, how the angle of the pick, how hard you're picking, how hard it is. The, 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 how hard you're hitting the note, but it, but it, all of those, all of those things are a representation of your state of of mind. You know, if you're if you're kind of like concerned and you're not quite sure and you're a little being a little wimpy about it, it's what you're going to sound like. Mm-hmm. So if you can if you can sort of find uh, an attitude in yourself or a sound. And go there in your in your with your visualization. Then that that's how you improve. That's actually, as far as I could tell, this is how you improve, because you have to be able to imagine things that are just a little out of your reach right now. And and then if you if you hold on to that, they they just they have to come out. You your hands will automatically find that position. And your fingers will start to move in a way. I still work on this all the time, you know, because you can never stop developing your tone if you're interested in it. Mm. You know? And we all see it. We see great, great players. When they get older, they just lose the mojo. You know, they, they a lot of times they lose the tone. And a lot of that is, I believe, because I, I've seen it in myself. It's the it's the lack of focus on it, but it's not the lack of focus. It's the lack of enthusiasm to continue to evolve yourself. That can happen, mm-hmm. and it's it doesn't need to happen because all you got to keep in mind is how much fun it is and how uh, it, it, how exciting it is to hear something, and then in your mind, whether it's a melody or a tone. Or it's a visualization of a of a, a gig, like you know, you asked me about Generation X or anything mm-hmm. that I've done. It always kind of starts with an idea, and then you cultivate it. And you, I know this is going to sound um, crazy, but experiment experiment with this idea. 
And, and, and what that is is you don't worry about the how. You know, you don't worry about how things are going to get done. You just imagine what it is that you would like to see be the goal. And then you, 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 you hold on to that. And then eventually the cooperative components just, they're, on, they're always there, but you don't have access to them unless you know that you're going towards something with, a, with the positive kind of a momentum. So I love talking about gear. Obviously, I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a, as nerdy when it comes to gear as most people might think. <laughs> little black dot and orchestration, you, you'll see a real nerd. Um, and I, I think that the study of gear and all the and amplifiers and preamps and all the components in the physical world are, you know, they have their place and they also uh, can be exciting and interesting. But more focus needs to be put on the imagination in the actual creating in your mind what it is you want your goal to be. And then the way that you achieve any goal is to imagine what it feels like to have already achieved it. <laughs> but you really have to feel it. It can't be a fantasy, an ego fantasy, uh, which is very easy to masquerade as an inspired idea. Mm. You know, they sound different in your head. One of them has tension in it. You know, I, I need to be this. I need, I, 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 until I'm, until I'm famous, until I've, uh, people know how great I am, until I've got the right, best band, the right relationships, the right record deal, until I have these things, uh, uh, I'm not gonna be happy. You know, and uh, <clears throat> that's actually upside down thinking, because if you're satisfied with where you're at, everything else is like gravy, you know, and it, when you're satisfied with where you're at, the feeling of progressing is a, it's a joyful, you know, it's an exciting idea. That's how you know that you're following your instincts as opposed to your egoic fantasies that will never happen. And if they do, then God forbid, because you reckon they're usually the worst thing for you. <laughs> right, right. It can but, be a disaster. It, it, yeah. What, what's happening for you right now is the right thing. Uh, it's a big statement and a big promise. But if you act as if it is, then you have everything you ever need. And anything that comes kind of comes with appreciation. And it, 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 it allows you to create an optimistic, appreciative atmosphere. And that's how that's when all, all of your best stuff is going to come. Hmm. I believe. I believe. So that's my closing thoughts. No, that's great. Great philosophy. Great way of thinking. So. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining. And uh, everybody who watched the show, we had tons of people watching the show. So uh, thanks so much for everybody tuning in. Uh, we'll be coming back soon in a couple weeks uh, with another show. I'll, I'll make the announcement on on the social media sites and stuff like that. But, um, Steve, is there anything else that you want to mention that's coming up for you or any new music or anything else that you want to mention? Well, for the 
for those out there that might be fans and are expecting my next record, um, I haven't even started working on it. <laughs> and that's because right now I'm, uh, what I'm doing is I'm preparing for these orchestra recordings next summer. And I'm, I have about three or four hours of orchestra music that I'm getting in. It's all, it's all, it's been, it's written. Some of it, I'm going to write a, little, a few more pieces, but I'm, uh, uh, just preparing the scores for recording. I probably got another month or so of work and then I'm going to start working on my next record and I hope you like it. Awesome. Well, awesome. I look forward to it. Thank you. All right. Thanks everybody Thank you for very- tuning in. Uh, you hang on Steve while I hang up and, um, thanks everybody. You have a great Thank week. You. We'll be back soon. Thank you.